Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, I was going to talk, uh, hoping to talk about uh, Scapegoat and... uh, Sons of Aaron and Strange Fire and all that stuff, but I'm still got that in uh, kind of a research mode, looking up different things because there's a lot of different opinions out there as to what that was really all about. And I think it's one of the areas of the Bible that is misunderstood, although it's not a huge moving force in the delusion of the modern church, but. Uh, it certainly has contributed to it because of our lack of understanding of some of these things that went on in the Old Testament. We don't understand what the Levites were doing, why they were organized in the way that they were organized. We've got articles up that talk about the golden calf. What was the golden calf? What was the red heifer? What were these things? And the truth about what those things were is completely different than what uh, we think today, if you went to a regular minister or or some church, uh, Catholic church, uh, Protestant church, or any of these, you know, they don't have a clue what those different events or stories in the Bible were really all about. Uh, what the Levites were doing. What were who were the seventy who were picked by Moses and were supposed to be brought up to the temple to receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's what they were supposed to, they were to receive the Holy Spirit and provide some sort of function in this government of Israel that existed for 400 years without any king, because there were no kings, uh, but every man did what was right in his own heart. Now, what people say, oh, that was bad because everybody just went around, did what their own, you know, what they thought was right, and it screwed everything up. Well, it only screws everything up if, the people, what they think in their own heart isn't true <laughs> if they're under a strong delusion. And they think they're doing what God wants them to do, and they don't actually. And the reason they're deluded about what they think about God is they don't really know God, but they think they know God, but they're under that strong delusion. They're not really being guided by the Holy Spirit. God is not writing on their hearts and upon their minds as we see Jeremiah talking about and, and when the whole of Israel was going through great apostasies. And uh, it certainly wasn't what uh, God writing upon the hearts and minds as Hebrews talks about. Um, and that was where we were supposed to be going as a people. The, the peculiar people were the people who were letting God write upon their hearts and their minds and was guiding them through the tree of life. But people don't want to be guided through the tree of life. They want to be guided by the tree of knowledge. They want to eat of the tree of knowledge. They want to make the tree of knowledge, which God gave you. God gave you the tree of knowledge and God gave you the tree of life. You just were not supposed to use the tree of knowledge as a source of direction, a guidance. Uh, it wasn't to be your way of deciding what is good and evil. You were to decide what was good and evil by the revelation of the tree of life. 
that would be to eat of that tree was to walk with God, to hear God, to have God control your inner compass as to what was right and wrong. God would show you what was right and wrong. And But you had some sort of choice, you some sort of free will. Right away from the beginning, you had some sort of free will. And why would I want to go into you know Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 10 and look at strange fire? Because the sons of the old two oldest sons of uh, Aaron missed it. They didn't get it. They weren't righteous men. They weren't connected to the tree. What what was their failing? Well, it's the same failing we all have. Where we we are guided by our own vanity. We imagine that we're better than other people. That we see the truth and other people don't see the truth. I'm always being accused of, you know, I wouldn't say always, but this is a big accusation that comes my way, is that I say I know, and nobody else knows but me, that somehow or other it's been revealed to me, but not anybody else, and that that's what His Holy Church is all about, that we know, and everybody else is wrong. We're just sharing what we've discovered. If you think we're wrong, challenge us. But the fact that we think we're right, you think you're right. You think you got it figured out. Everybody, I mean, why would you believe something you think is wrong? Of course we think what we think is right. That's a given. The problem is, is that we speak as if we're speaking with authority sometimes, or at least I do. Well, I'm I'm perfectly willing to listen to somebody who's got some factual evidence or some inspiration that contradicts what we're saying but we have to deal with the actual words that we're dealing with if we're going to discuss it now the problem with that is all these words and phrases and explanations this is all branches of the tree of knowledge you're not going to get it by studying you know, in the Bible where it says, study to show thyself approved, I just saw somebody quoting that again this week. A guy who, uh, evidently somebody shared one of our articles with him and, and he didn't like it. He didn't say why he didn't like it. He just says he didn't like it and it's not true and uh, tried to say that um, they need to go to the seminary. I went to the seminary. Uh, my brothers went to the seminary. Uh, the My whole family was... Uh, heavily involved in in this kind of, you know, we had this feedback. I mean, this was common conversations around the table for half a century now. But the fact is, is a lot of the people in the seminary had it wrong. Uh, and And now I know how they had it wrong. And I've taken it to professors of seminaries, and they don't like it. But they can't argue against it. But I quote them in books like Higher Liberty and show them because their arguments don't hold up to the facts, to the scriptures and to the facts about the scriptures and what the words meant that are in the scriptures. And so when it says study to show thyself approved, it's very important to understand that that word that they translate study in that one place is not translated study anywhere else. In the Bible, it doesn't mean study. It means be diligent to show thyself approved. 
That's a big deal. If you're going to change the meaning of the word, you're going to change the meaning of the word religion. And you're going to turn religion into what you think about God. If you think this, you're saved. If you think that, you're not saved. That's the conclusion that people come to when they think that religion means what you think about God. But religion is not what you think about God. It's what you do. That's what religion was. That's why they used the Greek word threskia for religion. That means what you do. That's why Jesus said it's not what you say, but you know, which is supposedly what you think, but what you do. It doesn't mean that you're saved by what you do. It means that what you do is evidence of whether you have real faith or not. If you're not doing what Christ said to do, your faith is dead. It's not real faith. It's fake faith, like fake news. It's not real. Your good news is fake good news because the good news is, is that you're saved if you have faith. But if you don't have real faith, then you're not really saved. Most churches that I come across, I can't say most churches in the world because I don't know all of them, but most of them that I come across are more concerned about making you feel like you are saved than whether you are really saved. I heard somebody interviewing a, a liberal on the street, you know, one of these guys asking questions and and uh, asked a question. I can't even remember what the question was, but I thought it was amazing that the guy says, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in facts. I don't think facts are important. It's it's what you feel. And I thought like, wow. <laughs> that's, just, that's just astounding that people have come to that, have degenerated to the point where it's just what you feel. It doesn't matter what is true, what is factual, what is actually happening. It's just a matter of what you feel. When you have large segments of the population that are operating under that theory of reality you have the opportunity for mass delusion you have the opportunity for uh, huge destructive moves in society of uh, people just running off of cliffs and pushing everybody else off with them you know kind of like black friday all the people rushing in the stores and pushing people over and fighting and knocking people down because uh, th- they feel like if I get this stuff, I'll be happy. Uh, th- they, it, It's crazy. It's insane. And our society has degenerated to the point where this is very common. It's not everybody. Everybody wasn't, you know, there were, uh, I saw a lot of people talking about, you know, this is me not doing anything on Black Friday. <laughs> Not going to town, not going to the stores, not engaging in that insanity. And that's great that you didn't engage in that insanity. But what insanities are you engaged with? Because there are lots of insanities out there to pick from. So anyway, I'm going to talk about this, you know, idea of mass delusion in the church. And, you know, because Christ talked about this. He, He didn't say some people are going to fall away from the church. He said many are going to say that they come in my name, but I'm going to tell them, get you from me, you workers of iniquity. Now, how many? I don't know, but many is not some. Many is many. And the, and the Greek word they use in the text is the word many. Many shall be deceived. Paul talks about that. Peter talks about that. 
James talks about that. That many would be deceived. There would be this strong delusion. Of course, we have an article up at preparing you on strong delusion. So, a strong delusion, if it's a mass delusion, is is a bad thing. And, you know, I remember, I think it was McMartin's school scandal way back when. I, I can't remember when it was all taking place, but I'm bad at dates. But uh, they had the kids all testifying about... Uh, being molested and satanic rituals and, and all these sort of things that were going on in the school. And now, uh, well, years later, it pretty much came out that none of these things actually happened. This was mass delusion, mass hysteria amongst the parents and the children. And the psychologists were actually feeding this uh, because they were asking these questions and leading questions and and implanting in the kids' minds, and then the kids would interact, and the parents would interact, and and next thing you know, all the kids are talking about stuff that never actually happened, and it, I mean, ruined people's lives. And this is a pretty you know localized, small scale because it was this one little school, uh, but uh, th- there's mass examples of uh, of these delusions, and, and when you bring them up. If people, you know, if I mention some of them, people who are still under those delusions uh, will cling to them. I remember my uh, uncle, uh, who's passed away now many years ago, but he, he went to a one-room schoolhouse across the street from, across the road. There was really wasn't a street. He lived out in the middle of North Dakota. and uh, And he was taught in school. This is what he told me, that he was taught in school, that the aurora borealis, which they see way up there in North Dakota on a regular basis, is caused by the reflection of sunlight off the northern poles. And, you know, I had a vague recollection of that having been taught at one time, but here's somebody who believed that, because I was telling them what really causes the northern lights, the aurora borealis is actually gases heating up in the upper atmosphere by coronal mass ejections and solar winds that come from the sun and when passing through our magnetic field, enter in, charge our magnetic field, and heat up these gases as they enter at the polar cusp. So that's actually what's taking place. And there's deeper explanations even that, but it has nothing to do with sunlight reflecting off of the poles. But, that was a theory at one time. It was taught as science at one time. My uncle was taught it when I was explaining to him, you know, actually in those days I could remember all the different gases and the amount of the charges and things about super electrons. And so he was kind of overwhelmed by the scientific evidence that I was presenting to him. But he was still clinging to that truth that he had accepted as a child. And that's a pretty factual thing. You can now look it up and explain it and everything. We didn't have Google in those days. And uh, that's another thing is the idea that if you Google something, you can find out the truth. Not so. Google has been, and I've watched this over the years, has been fiddling with their algorithms. And they keep you from the truth now on many, 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 many levels. You can still, you know, I still use it as a search engine now and then because of the fact that certain things, it will give you different results. But I'll go over to 
other search engines like DuckDuckGo and and Bing and and because I get a different results. And the reality is there's a huge amount of data on the internet that you won't even get in these searches. They this I mean it's the real hard data they exclude. So you have to know where to go get that because those search engines are going to give you the uh, you know a simpler rendition and that's kind of why you know, I've been doing all this research on scapegoats and, and strange fire and and I I see so much crazy stuff out there and so much repetition because people are told something like this the Aurora Borealis is caused by the northern you know, by the sunlight off the North Pole and that's not the case uh, whatsoever, but uh that was repeated over and over again. We eventually went across to that old schoolhouse and we found the science school book that it said in. And I actually read it in the school book with, with my cousin. And uh, and so, well, that's just amazing that once something is taught a certain way, it's hard to come back from that. Uh, for generations sometimes, those ideas will stick in your head. And that, of course, is what's happened with religion, what's happened with church. And we're going to be talking about how to come back from that and one of the ways is that i have to give you facts that crack and break down and dismantle the facts that you already have in your head but the reality is so many people are not using facts facts are irrelevant to them (laughs) they have an emotional relationship with the institutions that they have created through the false facts that they have already received. And so by attacking the false facts in their head, I am attacking their delusion. And so they're going to hate me. And of course, that's why Christ was hated to some degree. Uh, he was attacking the false institutions of the Pharisees that was supported by false teachings, false ideas, false facts. and um, and he was overthrowing those facts. And even though he was raising the dead and healing people and and actually created a daily ministration that could feed 5,000 people out in the middle of the wilderness, he was doing all these amazing, amazing things. The people still could not let go of their delusion that they knew Moses. And they did not know Moses. That's what Christ said. And Christ... From the beginning, he said, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you guys because you're not bearing fruit. He makes it very clear they're not bearing fruit because of their things like their Corbin, which is their sacrifice, the way in which they collected the sacrifice of the people. It used to be by free will offerings. By that time, it was by forced offerings through what we would call today taxation. But of course, there had been a long history of corruption. The, the mere fact that they chose Saul as king was a corruption of the people. They were already corrupted. because, and, and they say that in Samuel 8. You're already corrupted. Because you've already rejected God. That I should not reign over you. Well, how in the world was God reigning over them before? Through their hearts and their minds. Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was around back then. It's always been around. Jesus showed us how to 
make ourselves prepared to receive the Holy Spirit. And he sent the Holy Spirit again to 70, because he picked 70 as well as Moses. It wasn't just Moses picking 70. Jesus picked 70. There was another 70 around at the time Jesus picked his 70. They called themselves the Sanhedrin. But Jesus picked his own Sanhedrin, his own 70. And that was not the Sanhedrin that condemned him. That was the the Sanhedrin that ended up saying that we have no king but Caesar. Uh, they were both Sanhedrins, the 70 that Jesus picked. But of course, when they translate it, they just say he picked 70. They don't tell you he picked Sanhedrin because Sanhedrin was 70. So you, you don't realize he was the king picking 70, just like Moses picked 70. He picked 12 apostles. He took the kingdom away from the others. He said he was going to appoint it to his little flock. He did appoint it to his little flock. He, he put them in power, and then he sent power to them at Pentecost, where they went out and began to actually preach the kingdom of God, and the church began to do something that it doesn't do anymore. As a matter of fact, the modern church does more things like the Pharisees. But if you don't know what the Pharisees were doing, if you don't know what the sons of Aaron were doing and why they, they were doing it wrong and what the strange fire was and what the altars of stone were and what, what the red heifer was and what the golden calf was, you're going to have all kinds of facts in your head that are going to keep you from actually seeing what the church is. So we're going to talk about that. And I came across a quote. I was looking up interpretation of built of living stones because they talk about living stones in the New Testament. And it is my contention, we have a lot of evidence, we won't go through all of it right now, but if you, if you, if you really want to know, check it out. Find out where we're wrong. Let us know where you think we're wrong. I mean, come with facts. If you're going to tell me that my facts are wrong, show me your facts. And let's look at them side by side and see where the source of these facts are. Now, I know you're not going to believe the truth unless the Holy Spirit is operating in your heart and your mind. But you can't make the Holy Spirit do that. And and there are people trying to bring the Holy Spirit back into the church. And there there's people who are actually walking away from churches. And there's reason why that. We'll get into that eventually. And then we'll end up going back to this subject of what elders are and eldership and discipleship and all these things are. But you got to get some of these false facts out of your head first. Some of this delusion out of your head. And the delusion has many, many different levels. I mean, like the food pyramid, that was one of the examples that this was taught. And there's, there's people who've gone into research where this idea of the food pyramids and what you should be eating every day and your diet and all this kind of stuff. And it's really a complicated issue. And we won't go through it here. We really ought to do programs on that. And I have some people that are, are really done a lot of research on that. And But the food pyramids, it, it's false. Uh, the idea that vaccinations are going to solve all your health problems, false. It's not, not the case. There are side effects to that. I'm not saying they don't work at all. I'm saying there's side effects. And you're not getting both sides of the story. you got a billion-dollar industry that wants you to think a certain way. They're going to influence your thinking and already have. Same way with global warming. What is what is really going on with global warming? You have to be objective. And that's what we're going to take a look at is the church and that objectivity. 
So welcome back. So what is the church? Are we under some sort of strong delusion concerning what the church is and what Christ was appointing as the church and what is the job of the church and what's its function and relationship to religion and pure religion? You know, what do we know? What do we don't know? And But first, let's, let, are you going to be objective in this examination? Am I objective in this examination? Uh, what is objective? It's not influenced by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing facts contrasted with subjective. And like I said, that if you're not objective, you're not de- interested in facts, you're not dealing with facts, you're going to be subjective. Subjective is the antithesis of objective. And so, if you're subjective, you're subject. You're subject to your feeling. If somebody can make you feel a certain way, they are masters over your actions. They're even masters over what you think. So, I don't want you to be subjective. To me, especially. I I would love it if you were subjective to the Holy Spirit. Uh, But if you were subjective, if you were really subjective to the Holy Spirit, your facts would line up. You wouldn't need the facts to substitute for the Holy Spirit. But unfortunately, there's a lot of other spirits out there other than the Holy Spirit. And people are often subject to those other spirits, those other ideas. There's ideologies and they, they disregard facts. They will, they will throw out facts. They will repudiate facts. They will kill People who bring them facts they do not want to hear. Maybe they'll just shout them down today, but tomorrow they will kill them or allow them to be killed just to get rid of them so that they don't have to hear the facts that they're bringing to the table. Because those facts interfere with what they worship in their subjectivity. They are a member of a cult. We have an article on the Roman imperial cult. What a cult really was. I mean, that's a, the word cult comes from a Latin word. So to understand what a cult is, it, it behooves you to go back and find out what the Roman imperial cult was. The fact is the Pharisees had a cult as well. Started by Herod and the Pharisees. And once you signed up, you were in that cult and you were not allowed to leave that cult. Muslims do that today. They actually kill you if you leave. <laughs> in some Muslim groups, if you're converted to another religion, you will be subject to death. And they will want you murdered, killed, because you have gone to another religion, uh, another ideology. So anyway, so you you need to calm down and set aside your subjectivity just take the facts. If the facts are breaking down what you already thought you believed was true, hang in there because we're going to share with you other facts that may help you rethink or think differently than you thought before about the church. And if you rethink or think differently, that might be counted as repentance, because that's what repentance is, thinking differently. So anyway, in my quest for 
finding out, you know, like I said, I was looking up things about the living stones and I came across interpretation of built of living stones. And it was a, it's a PDF file that was written by a traditionalist perspective of uh, Christopher Whittle. And there's other people out there named Whittle. This is a Catholic fellow. And he says, the church building must glorify God, his son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the angels, and the saints. It is to keep sacred the Roman Catholic Church and its ceremonies. And he has a big long list of pages, I think it's 13 pages in this document, telling you what the church has to do to, to accomplish what the church building and how that church building plays a part in accomplishing that. And uh, it's a strong delusion. And uh, it and it's really interesting because uh, we're going to also talk about another phrase that we hear brought up. And, and, and see, there's a lot of other people out there who are uh, of the unchurched movement uh, and uh, others who talk about the church is not a building. It's a community. It's people. And uh, they they have a number of different phrases that they use in relationship to the church. You know, like, do church. You know, how we do church has to change. Well, do church. That, that, that to me, just like, it just leaps at me. And I says, what does that mean? Do church. Church service. Uh, what what do they mean by these phrases? And uh, and so all we have to do is go back to the original text of the scripture, because that we have to be rooted in. Well, we really have to be rooted in the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to deal on the factual side of things, the tree of knowledge side of things, we go back to the original scriptures and find the word church. And say, what does this word mean in the original Greek? How was it being used in the scriptural text? Well, the word church is translated from the word ecclesia. And we have articles up on that. We'll go through in great detail. Uh, ecclesia does not mean assembly. There's seven different language, uh, words in the Greek language that could be, mean types of assemblies. The ecclesia is not one of them. It doesn't really mean assembly. It means called out. It's actually two words, ecclesia, which means called out. And we give you the context and history of where this was commonly used. And the Bible talks about, in the New Testament, the church in the wilderness and the church that Jesus appoints. And every time you see that word, it means the called out. And Jesus called out his apostles, said you were to live in the world, but not of the world. These these are those that I have kept from the world. These are the ones who are out, called out. He compares them with the church in the wilderness, the called out in the wilderness. Who was the called out in the wilderness? It was the, ended up being this group that we call the Levites. And they call them the Levites because most of the ones who came out were Levites. And so they called them Levites. But they weren't all Levites. Some of them were other tribes. But they became this other group called Levites. Composed mostly of people from the Levite tribe. That were to do something directed by Moses. And 
what they were doing is it's kind of important to understand if you had the church in the wilderness and then you had the church. It was common knowledge uh, expressed by, and we show the quotes on pages on the subject of Levites. Uh, and and we also reference it from other other places that it was common knowledge and accepted by people like Jerome and early church fathers that the early church the called out the early called out the early ministers who were called out to serve the people to go back and serve the people feed his sheep were doing the same thing that the Levites were supposed to do. The problem with modern Christians, when you say that, they say, yeah, we don't have to do what the Levites were doing because they don't know what the Levites are doing. They have a pharisaical look or view of the Old Testament. Because, like I said, and we've said this many times, there were very popular religious groups, not a part of the Pharisees, virtually seemingly opposed to the Pharisees, read the same Torah that the Pharisees were reading, spoke Hebrew the same way that the uh, the Pharisees did, but they said that the Pharisees' interpretation of the Old Testament was a fiction and a fraud, and they had a completely different interpretation of the same exact book that led them not to participate in animal sacrifice, except things like Passover, that you kill the animal there, but they all sit down and eat it. Uh, and they they put it on the fire, but they don't just burn it up. They they cook it and eat it and consume it together. Bunches of families gathered in a home, consume it together. They had a completely different view. And they opposed the Corbin of the Pharisees. Uh, they had baptism. Uh, John the Baptist was believed to be a part of that group that's commonly believed by most theologians even today that he was a part of the Essenes. And the Essenes had this different view of the Old Testament. But your modern Christians, most of their view of the Old Testament is not that of the Essenes, but that of the Pharisees. So when you say the ministers of the church should be like the Levites and doing what the Levites are doing, they say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, I understand because you don't have all the facts. You think that the old altars of stone were people piling up rocks and burning up sheep. The Essenes didn't think that. So we have articles that explain that, the sophistry articles, and show you the Hebrew language, and you can go through all that. And so we don't, we're not going to go through all that today, but we're going to take a look at some of the other opinions of other people, like the, the home church and the unchurched group. There's unchurching groups, and they, they're kind of moving over like the home church groups. There are a lot of home church groups, Luke 10, uh, their home church groups and uh, I mean I could go through a long list and there's a lot of people just start home churches on their own and they're not a part of any kind of network but uh, one of them gave a TED talk and uh, on the unchurched group people and uh, he has a little chart up there and he talks about that the uh, original church were was a community thing and they they were small groups and they met in homes uh, they were like an extended family. And then over there on the other side, he says, today the church is more like a corporation. It meets in buildings, special buildings, often big buildings. Uh, and they are run like companies. 
And that little chart there is pretty accurate, but does not give you the full picture. Because when he says things like community, it was a co- communities, it was, they did meet in homes. But it's very clear in the scriptures that they, they, when they met in homes on a small basis, on a small group basis, that they were also connected in a network all across the Roman Empire. So that if, if the daily ministration in those homes, that was another thing, he doesn't really make any mention of this in his little chart. But Christians were taking care of all the social welfare for other Christians in a community basis, on a local basis, and on an international basis because they were cast out of the social welfare program run through the temple in Jerusalem. Because they had a social welfare program that divided bread from house to house, uh, divided, you know, social welfare benefits, took care of the needy of society, the widows and the orphans, the needy of society. They did this through the temple and through the synagogues. So they were collecting funds, which was the sacrifice of the people, the Corbin and the people, and it was going up to the temple and then coming back down to the local churches, the local synagogues. And they were taking care of the needy. And they were afraid that if they were kicked out of anybody, and we see this in John, that if they were kicked out, they were not going to get those benefits anymore. And so early Christians, when they got baptized, they were kicked out of the social welfare system of the government of Judea. And this is the early, all your early Christians were Jews. I mean, there were some that were not, but most all of the early Christians, and right out of the box at Pentecost, those were Jews. Some of them were from Greece, and some of them were from other countries, because they they were coming at Pentecost, which is a gathering. For, you know, people had pilgrimages, and a lot of people came there just to see Christ because they'd heard about him. And then they get there and they find out, oh, he was crucified. You know, 40 days ago. And uh, he just ascended. We just saw him going up in a cloud. That was just really fantastic. You should have been there. And they go like, oh my gosh. So what are we going to do? And so they're all there for the party. And lo and behold, on Pentecost, there seems to be like an earthquake. And something happened there with all the, uh, the, the 120 in the upper room. And they came out and they began to preach the kingdom. And people started signing up by the thousands. And they all got the baptism of Jesus Christ through the apostles. And they, on that day, they're kicked out of the government welfare system of Judea. They're not going to get any more help. I mean, they not only could have got help, if they stayed in that system, they would have got local help. But these were people from other countries that could... If something really bad happened in their country, they could apply to Jerusalem and Jerusalem would send them aid. But now they're not going to get that anymore because they're out of the system run by the Pharisees and and by originally Herod the Great. They're out of that system because they just got a baptism of Jesus Christ. When they got his baptism, they're saying Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the rightful King of our government. And therefore, His disciples, now apostles, are going to take care of the welfare of our society. 
the faith, hope, and charity, welfare of our society. We're not going to get any more help from Herod. And and if you understand the history, and we have a lot written on this, Herod was receiving aid from Rome because he was making contracts with Rome. And Augustus was sending free bread to Jerusalem and to Israel, or to Judea as it was called then. And they were getting foreign aid from Rome. And if if um, the aid was being distributed on a day that was a Jewish holiday, Augustus specifically said that Jews could come on another day and get their free bread from Rome. And, and Augustus was actually loved by many of the Jews because he was big into these free bread giveaways, this welfare system, because they had a system they called Corbin too. It was Q-O-R-B-A-N. And the way the the Romans spelled it. But it was a system of social welfare. We we know of it as the free bread and circuses of Rome. They had that. If you became a disciple of Christ. A follower of Christ. A Christian. a Someone who was baptized of Christ. And his appointed government. Of called out men. You couldn't get the free bread of Rome because the free bread of Rome did not come to the ministers of Christ. They didn't, they had no agreement with Rome like the Pharisees did. So they weren't, you know, if, if there was a famine in Jerusalem or in Syria, uh, whatever, Christians were not going to get supplies from Rome. You know, if there, you know, we talked in the last couple of weeks about the fire in paradise. Many of the people who uh, suffered, lost their homes, lost everything. They're sleeping in a parking lot in a Walmart. And actually, a few days ago, they were told that they would have to be leaving. <laughs> and people are helping them leave. But uh, there's been a great many reports. I actually know people who grew up in Paradise now um, and met them through the extended network. And... Uh, there's almost no government aid down there that they're seeing a presence of. Uh, and someone I shared today on my Facebook page uh, that, uh, you know, refugees or immigrants uh, coming from Mexico were being housed in buildings. They're sleeping on the floor and everything, but they have a roof over their head. But the refugees from the Paradise Fire are in pup tents in the Walmart park. <laughs> And told that they'll have to be leaving soon. Uh, so there. But what really should be going on. Is starting to go on. And we're starting to see it. Is that people are helping them out. They're not very organized about it. Uh, somebody just donated a million dollars. For aid there. But unfortunately. A great deal of that aid sometimes is lost. Because they're not organized. And the people of paradise were not organized. If they were really organized, they probably could have avoided a lot of the damage of the fire. But they were not well organized because they were dependent upon government. Well, this is what was going on in Judea. The people had become dependent upon an authoritarian government to provide social welfare through a system of Corbin sacrifice that went to the temple. And the temple would take care of your parents and take care of the widows and the orphans. But they were compelled offerings. So they really weren't watching how things were going. That You just had to pay in. And that kind of sacrifice makes the word of God to none effect. When you have to choose to pay in, 
Then you create a network so you know who you're giving to. You don't just send a check to the Red Cross. The head of the Red Cross, I think he gets $600,000 a year wages. That's what he gets paid. Pretty good money. Uh, but that comes from your donations. And a lot of the other higher-ups are getting huge amounts of money, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand $400,000 a year. The guy down on the ground who actually does the work, he doesn't get that much money. <laughs> but they waste a lot of money. Uh, they may be more efficient than some uh, groups, but the reality is the church should be the most efficient welfare provider, emergency provider, because it was in the first century church. So this brings me to a quote that I, I gleaned in this. There was some question about who actually said it, because uh, there's, uh, there's a book, uh, Discipleship, Five Steps That Help your church to make disciples and it's written by Jim Putman and Bobby William Harrington Robert Coleman and but in it, it there's a line and this line shows up in a number of places our dream is that we fundamentally change the way we do church again that's a misuse of the word church you don't do church church is the called out would you say Change the way we do the called out. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. But we have this distorted view of what the church is. I agree it's not a building. So the, the first quote that I gave you, it's not a building. Although you'll find that definition around today. At the time the word church popped up in the original text as ecclesia, it did not mean a building. It also isn't something you do. You don't do church. But anyway, he says he want to fundamentally change the way we do church. That we take out a clean sheet of paper and we rethink all our old assumptions. Replace it with new insights. Insights that are informed by research and rooted in scripture. Now that's, that sounds good. Research and rooted in scripture. But whose interpretation? The Pharisees' interpretation, the Essenes' interpretation, or Paul, Peter, John, and Christ's interpretation. So anyway, so it's a good idea, but we're going to look at what he means by research and rooted in scriptures. Our dream, he goes on to say, is really to discover what God is doing and how he's asking us to transform this planet. Sounds good. Now this is actually a quote by Greg Hawkins who is a a minister of uh, he's an executive pastor of Willow Church and uh, the head of that church I think is Bill Hibbles. Uh, But before he got into pastoring he was a marketing consultant and it shows up in the way he approaches things. He wrote a book called Reveal. And uh, we're going to take a look at some of the ideas that he has come up with. And uh, are they compatible with Christ in the early church? Because now we're going to take a clean slate. We're going to have to rethink everything. And if we're going to do research, we're going to have to look at what Christ says the church is. Because if it's not Christ's church, if it's just our church, if we're just creating another institution and calling it the church... That's not going to cut cut muster. 
which is another term we just talked about the other day, that people use these. Somebody was saying cut mustard as if it had, you know, like cut mayonnaise. <laughs> That's not what the word means. Uh, mustard is a role. It's a membership role. And to cut mustard is to look at the list of people that are a member of an institution and the, those people, and this, it comes from a nautical term, when uh, a ship, an English ship, would board a ship with a French flag, and they were at war with Spain and not with France, uh, which periodically happened, uh, and they looked at the muster rolls, the rolls of the members of the crew, and they said, uh, Rodriguez and Emmanuel Cortez and and all these Spanish names, they say your claim to be a French ship does not cut muster, because all your all your sailors are Spanish, <laughs> and so they would seize the ship. So anyway, but back to this, we're going to take a look in depth as to what their plan is and what Christ's plan is, and see if they don't match up or if they do match up when we return to Keys of the Kingdom next. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about what the church is, what it means to do church, uh, what the living stones are, and what's the delusion uh, about this and what the church is and what should the church be doing and according to Christ. Because uh, now a lot of people are going to have an opinion about what they think the church should be doing. But their opinion is their opinion. They're entitled to their opinion. But I want to know what God's opinion is. And the reality is, is God is the same yesterday as he was today, or is he going to be tomorrow? Whatever God is, this heuristic we, we label as God, and it's some sort of an image we have of God in our mind. But really, what God is, is beyond our image. There is no image of God. God is the unmoved mover, the creator of everything, the thing that gives life and produces life and creates life and gives us choice whatever that is he doesn't give us choice about everything but he gives us some sort of a choice and that choice seems to be a choice in direction we're either going towards god or going away from god we're getting closer to the divine creator or farther away from it and uh you know i've been dealing with this idea and, and talking about you know, philosophers, Gerard and and Immanuel Kant and, and what's going on in society because they're using a lot of these philosophers to come up with uh, all kinds of ideologies that they can believe in because man wants something to believe in. That's why he constructs idols in ancient history is they represent what he believes and he identifies with what he believes and he gives life to what he believes uh, but the reality is, is the God isn't dependent upon your belief. I mean, the God, the moving divine intelligence, whatever that is, that we can't grasp entirely in our own minds anyway. We try to figure it out. But when we think we figured it out, we figured it out by use of the tree of knowledge then we worship the image of what we think we figured out. And the reality is we don't know what God is as far as an image. Uh, we can, we can talk about 
what we consider divine characters and uh, characteristics and virtue and, and right and wrong, but it that's our opinion again. And when our opinion gets closer and closer to God's opinion, then we get closer and closer to God. But if we begin to formulate our own opinion and begin to worship our own opinion, defend our own opinion, that's vanity. That's ego. That's dangerous. That's That actually leads us farther and farther away from God so that we will end up doing something really stupid that we're not supposed to do like the sons of Aaron and we're going to get fried. And so anyway... That's what's so dangerous about that strong delusion, that if we're following the delusion rather than the truth, it's going to lead us into trouble. And, of course, the the prayer that we're supposed to have in our hearts in like manner, it's not actual words, lead us not into temptation. Uh, that's We're supposed to be led in this other direction. But anyway, so let's get to this uh, uh, this fellow, uh, Greg Hawkins, who wrote this book, Revealed, this former marketing consultant turned pastor, executive pastor at Willow Church, which is one of the largest and most successful, and I use the word successful loosely, successful at what? Because we're not sure that it's a real church yet, that it's really a church established by Jesus Christ. But by today's standards, it's large, and it's successful, and it's influential in churches in America and all over the world. But he says, Greg says, that the church is failing. And he talks about this. And he talks about a solution. Is his solution a good solution? Is his solution Christ's solution? Is it? Does it conform to what Christ said the church should be? Because if your church is established by Christ... It needs to be promoting his doctrines, his ordinances, what he taught. That's what it needs to be promoting. It's not creating a new institution that calls itself the church that is doing something other than what Christ wanted us to do. It has to conform to be a church by the legal definition was established by Christ. And this is the big danger And we see it all over the world where men come along and they establish something based on what they think, their opinion, and they call it the church. And they have every right to do that. But it may not be the church. It may not be his church. It may not be his holy church. And when we use the phrase his holy church, we're just describing what we're seeking we we can't say that we are what we should be. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not what I should be entirely. But we're either striving, which is a word Christ used, persevering to become his holy church, or we're trying to make some sort of substitute for church that makes us feel saved. And one of the things that Greg talks about is spiritual continuum. And I thought, when I first heard that come out of his mouth, I thought, oh, well, that sounds interesting. Spiritual continuum. And he lists off five things that are in this spiritual continuum. And he says uh, there, there are five different kinds of Christians who come to church or churchgoers. And he says that there are those that are exploring Christianity. They believe that there's a God. They're not sure about this Jesus thing. 
but they're taking a look they're 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 just trying to find out more about they think there's something important here they have a belief in god and they're trying to figure out where they fit into this and then the second group he calls they have accepted jesus but they're new in the faith it's not entirely they're not entirely immersed in it but they they're they're willing to go in in that direction so these are kind of these two categories are kind of together but they're separate categories but then um uh there's the group that love Jesus. They love to love Jesus on a daily basis. And, you know, they pray on a regular basis. They think about Jesus on a regular basis. They have, you know, something in their minds about Jesus on a regular basis. And uh, that's the third group. The fourth group is Jesus is the center to their life. Most important relationship in their life. And he comes to the conclusion that it's the fourth group and even the third group that are more likely to find church unsatisfactory and might want to leave or go away from church. Uh, then he actually adds another fifth group he calls the stalled in their relationship but involved with the church. And the, those who are more and more involved with the church may be also more and more stalled in their relationship. Now, this is all incorporated around his view of doing church. I mean, he's the one who said, do church, when we do church. But church isn't something you do. Church is the called out. And But there is the question, what should the called out be doing? And what should they be doing in relationship to the people? And what should the people be doing in relationship to the called out? Because clearly there was a separate group. Jesus said, he didn't say I was going to appoint my kingdom to everybody. He said he was going to appoint his kingdom to the little flock. And and then they were to lay hands and appoint other men. So we see them appointing elders. And then the modern church has interpreted elders as an office of the church. We're going to appoint a man, an elder in the church. And we've got whole articles now and several recordings for the last couple of weeks. And we'll probably do some more because I've expanded on those articles uh, on those web pages that explain that an elder is an office of the family. They weren't appointing elders to be elders. They were already elders. They were taking elders in the congregations of the people, which are the heads of families, and appointing those heads of families, those elders, to do something in the church. So understanding what the church was doing is going to help you understand what the word do church really should mean. And those elders were doing what the church was supposed to be doing. And what the church was supposed to be doing was a directive of Christ's teachings. It wasn't a directive of the people. Although the people had a huge influence over what they did because the whole church operated according to the perfect law of liberty. And it was based on family. Families coming together in what they called free assemblies, or we call congregations. And they were small. They met in homes. And what they decided to give to the ministers to take care of the daily ministration was doing church. <laughs> Although I hate that phrase. Whenever you're doing church, kind of 
kind of gives me kind of a funny feeling because you don't do church. You you don't do ecclesia. The ecclesia is the called out who are to minister to the people by the perfect law of liberty, rightly dividing the bread from house to house in a daily ministration that took care of all the social welfare of the people, for the people, and by the people, locally and internationally. That's your church program. That's what your church program should be doing. Your youth group should be involved in that. Your uh, your elders should be involved in that. Your old people should be involved in that. And you should be taking care of all the social welfare of the people without going to the world, to the world of Caesar, to get aid and comfort. You're supposed to be doing that for yourself. If everybody in who was who claims to be a Christian in paradise were already sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, like Christ commanded. You didn't know he commanded that? Yeah, that he commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in the tens in ranks of a hundred and ranks of a thousand, so that they could rightly divide the bread from house to house. So they could rightly feed those who needed help and didn't have enough. And if all the Christians in California, including Paradise, were already organized in such a way, taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity rather than force, fear, and violence, that when that fire came, uh, actually I believe there would have been some divine protection in the whole process, they would have been better prepared for the fire, but uh, even if they weren't, and with some sort of disaster they couldn't avoid, like an earthquake or flood or drought or whatever, they would have an entire network all across the nation and beyond that could send aid to the best place in town, to the best people in town, the most charitable and responsible people in town, and they would make sure that everybody got to eat that day. If they have to evacuate entirely and not even go back, there would have been a whole network all across the nation which would allow those people to be absorbed in other houses and other communities all over and then maybe make preparations to go back. Now, a lot of those house sites, house sites uh, they say, are now toxic, contaminated areas because every bit of plastic furniture and, and uh, chemicals and everything melted down into the soil and have now created a toxicity in the soil there and the ash blowing around and everything. It's not good for you. So they can't just go back and rebuild. Uh, they may have to, I mean, their businesses a lot of times are gone. Their homes are gone. Part of their family is gone. Sometimes whole families died out in in this t- terrible Holocaust. And you ain't seen nothing yet. But anyway, so... Let's go back to these uh, exploring Christianity, believe in God, but not sure about Jesus. Well, I'm not sure that all those other four categories even know who Jesus was. Oh, they say, oh, you know, virgin birth and, you know, son of God and savior, Messiah. Do they know he was the king of a government of the people, for the people and by the people that operated by faith, hope and charity and that perfect law of liberty and took care of all the social welfare of the people? No, they don't seem to know that. They think that they can still pray to Caesar for their daily bread 
and then say the Our Father or the Rosary or whatever they want to say in their churches, and they're okay. The problem is, and this is just, we're just going to touch on it. It's, it's, maybe need more unpacking and explanation is that people are mistaking a emotional experience for a spiritual experience and they're not the same as a matter of fact real spiritual experience are often not extremely emotional you may get very emotional as you approach that spiritual experience you may feel uh, emotional releases as you have the spiritual experience. And this is what's so... There are a lot of people go to church and they do have a spiritual experience. Because... But that's a personal thing. It's not generated by the music. Uh, they can generate the feeling, the emotional feeling again by hearing the music. But the actual sp- spiritual experience is is beyond emotion. It's not... You can't reproduce the emotion to bring back the Holy Spirit. You do not conjure up the Holy Spirit by conjuring up the emotion. If that were true, you could probably take a pill and bring on the Holy Spirit. You know, because you can take pills that will give you an emotional experience. You can play music that will give you an emotional experience. But the actual spiritual experience is is something beyond emotion. Uh, emotion is really a chemical reaction in your body that comes from lots of different stimuli. And there may be a spiritual element to some of that stimulation, the direction that stimulation may take. But it's very dangerous to try to reproduce that emotion in order to conjure up the Holy Spirit. This is what the sons of Aaron were doing. They were trying to conjure up the blessings of the Spirit of God and they got too close and their vanity should have told them we're getting too close. They were tempting God. They had arguments with their brothers. They had put down their brothers. They refused to get married because they couldn't find any woman that was suitable for them because they were vain. They were not righteous. They were vain. Uh, they, they And they were trying to manipulate God. And they got too close to the tabernacle and got zapped. And that's... They, they wouldn't have got so close to the tabernacle had they been listening to the Holy Spirit. But they were following their own vanity. And this is what's dangerous in the modern church thing. Thieves and robbers have community. They have faith in their community. They have a loyalty, a brotherhood in their community that gives them a sense of belonging. Gangs do this. Guys that come from broken families, they have no family, they live in a rough environment, nobody's there to look out for them. They get mixed up with a gang. The gang will watch their back that will be like the family, like the family, which we go back up to that TED Talk. He was talking about this group, this home church, is like a family. It's supplying you with an emotional uh, stability that you're not getting otherwise. That This gregarious nature of man is being satisfied by coming together. Well, thieves and robbers do that. And Jesus points that out. 
that thieves and robbers do that. That wicked do that. It's not, you can't just love those who love you. I mean, you get the emotional feeling when you love each other. But that's not enough. Religion was defined as the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. Well, those are those two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, the same word you see love there, is the same word that is translated charity most of the time when Paul says it. So that love is an action word. You don't get together to get a good feeling once a week. To get charged up emotionally. You get together to actually love. To be this charitable institution of tens, hundreds, and thousands. So that when fire races through your community. When there's earthquakes and floods and fire and brimstone and famines and wars and whatever (laughs) happens. You have a network that is bound together. Religiere is a word that means to rebind. It is bound together not by social compact or contracts or corporations or any of these other things. It's bound together by love, by charity, by honor. They helped you. You want to help them. And you come together for the purposes of practicing pure religion, taking care of the needy of your society. Those people whose family is broke down, their house is burned down. Uh, their business is burned down, whatever, been destroyed, and they need help. And when you want to go out there and help society like that, who do you want to help first? You want to help first the guys who beats his wife and and the wife who lets the husband molest the children and the, and the, the alcoholics and the, the, the people who have been divorced a dozen times and and don't stick at anything, or do you want to help the really good folks of the community first? Now, you want to help everybody, but you got limited resources. And this is what the early church was doing. It was going out and helping everybody, but it was focusing on the church community. Because of the church community, which was a network of small home churches, was strong and healthy, they would be able to help other people in the community. And that's why we talk about the extended network. That's the that's those people that maybe uh, Greg Hawkins is talking about in that first category. They have a certain knowledge of Christ in the fact that they know virtue. They they know justice and mercy. That they have that sense about them, but they they really don't understand Christianity yet. But they're pretty good people. They didn't get down in a waiting pool and get baptized yet, but they're pretty good people. Now, we're not passing judgment on them, but wouldn't you want to help those people out first? Well, how would I know who they are? That's why you need that local community church on the ground, which is that church, again, when you look at the church, what's the word mean? Called out. Who's the called out? It's the ministers. It's the ordained ministers of the church. They're the ones who are called out to provide a service for everybody else, all the elders of the community, all the heads of families in the community. They're supposed to be providing a service. They can't do that unless they're linked together in a network because the people in paradise were all burned up. I mean, their their resources were devastated. 
their food supplies, everything, their cars, uh, they, transportation. I mean, they're just afoot. I mean, they have to go out and buy new cars. They're going to go out and buy used cars. All the cars are melted down on the side of the road in places. So they have to reach out beyond their community to get aid. And so what's the best way to do that? To be Christians already, that would be self-evident. So when he talks about, when Greg Hawkins talks about church programs, and I, I really don't have a good grasp of his church programs, but I can tell you if you were doing what the first century church was doing, your church programs would be absolutely packed with things to do and things to take care of. I mean, every single church in the network would have already packed up pickups and met with semis and loaded up supplies and sent them to the ministers in paradise. And the ministers in paradise would have known who to call upon, what elders in the community are the most efficient, most responsible. And they would be, just like it says in Timothy and Titus, they would be heads of families who had raised their families and and had uh, sons and daughters who were responsible and virtuous people. And those are the ones that you would say, okay, we how much supplies do you need? And it's, well, I don't know yet. Well, make a list. You know how many people you've got in, that you know that are in your congregation. Find out what they need. How many houses burned down? How many people need shelters? How many people need tents? Because uh, we have supplies that we can bring and set up here and so you ask all these different ministers and they know what they need and then they help and send the rightly divide the bread the houses the tents the funds from house to house from family to family to take care of the needy of their society and i can guarantee if you were actually doing what christ said to do you would be ready for these disasters when they take place. And you you would get the same feelings of love and community and we'd send you, you know, uh, snapshots of people who are helping out and you'd get to know their names and you'd say, oh, wow, that's, I really feel good about that. That we actually did good. Because that's why you go to church. You don't go to church to feel good. That makes you subjective. To the world, the flesh, and the devil. You go to church to do good. That's why Jesus says it's not what you say. It's what you do. It's also not what you feel. It's what is. It's the truth. The truth is not what you feel it is. It is what it is. So, when Greg Hawkins, this executive pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, and Doug Slaybaugh, who was previously from the Saddleback Church, get together and start up uh, with they have a thing they call uh, start op uh, a strat op s-t-a-r-a-t capital o-p strat op and it's a strategic operating plan in planning the process used by successful businesses and nonprofit churches they probably have some ideas that we could use but the church is not a business. It's not right that we leave the work of the church to run a business. The church is the is the institution of Christ. And it should be about the business of Christ. 
not a business where we get more and more people to sit. You know, when I was looking at the Willow Creek Church, Community Church, it looks like a Greek Colosseum kind of gathering, you know, where they they have rows and rows of round seats around a central speaker. And uh, that central speaker gets up there and everybody listens and he tries to generate a good feeling in everybody that they will want to come back to tomorrow. But he was saying that that in itself was not serving the needs of the people who were really close to Christ and active. And it wasn't serving the needs because it wasn't really doing what Christ wanted us to do, which was to love one another, take care of one another, near and far, close and across the world and around the world. And that's what the church should be doing. And that has a spiritual ramification to it, which we'll talk about when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So this Willow Creek Church uh, is supposedly acknowledging the revolution on the church. The church as uh, it is now is not working, they say. And so they have this proposal again to let's take out a clean sheet of paper and throw away what we've always done and always believed about how we do church and start over. Okay, well, the clean sheet of paper that you need is a clean heart and mind because I'm not going to write anything down. It's going to tell you what you're supposed to do. I mean, obviously, I can tell you that you should sit down in the tens, hundreds and thousands, because Christ commanded that we make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds and thousands. He doesn't want me to go out and twist your arm. But those people who are willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds and thousands, gather together in local congregations of people, which will in itself, give you some of that emotional support, which is not necessarily wrong, but in itself is not necessarily enough. Because like I said, the thieves and robbers, Christ said it, you know, the wicked, they they love one another. They will gather together. So that's not enough by itself. But if you're not willing to gather together, what's keeping you from gathering together in lo- local home churches? Maybe you're not willing to forgive your neighbor. Make peace. You want people to agree with you. You want people to support what you think. You don't have a right to make people support what you think. Your walk towards Christ is an individual walk towards Christ. And the way you walk towards Christ is you walk in the way of Christ. And the way of Christ was simple. Love one another. Uh, Listen to the basic virtues that God has put forward since the beginning. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. And start walking in that direction. The fact that somebody in your congregation does, and I say your congregation, these are free assemblies, folks. He's not corporations. You gather together and somebody gathers and Say they're a prostitute. Jesus gathered with prostitutes. Jesus gathered with tax collectors, for gosh sakes. 
and, and he actually listed those together. <laughs> Tax collectors and prostitutes. <laughs> he gathered with them, sat down with them, ate with them, talked with them. That's what a free assembly can do. Your character needs to be created by the Holy Spirit. In order for your character to be created by the Holy Spirit, you have to let God write upon your heart and upon your mind. In order to do that, you need to make your heart and mind a clean sheet of paper. In other words, you need to set down all these man-made doctrines that you have already created that you want everybody else to conform to. Because you want mutual support and the image of God that you have created in your mind. The image of God you can't create in your mind. You might, you might get some ideas that bring you closer to understanding who God is. But don't worship the image that you create with that understanding. Don't try to get closer and closer to that image. You get too close to the ark and you get zapped and killed and burned up. Which is what happened to the sons of Aaron, the oldest, two oldest sons of Aaron. They, they had an image of themselves in the image of God that they created in their mind. They were too good to get married. Too good for that woman, too good for that woman. Uh, too good for their brothers. They're always putting their brothers down. That that's not that's not it. That's why Jesus Jesus even talks about that. If you still have a problem with your brother, make peace with him before you go to the altar. Don't even go to the altar till you make peace with your brother. You know why you have a con- a free assembly? Because that's nine other families you got to make peace with. <laughs> Because in the process of making peace with them, in the process of forgiving them, you clean that slate. You clean that sheet of paper of your heart and your mind. You setting down the garbage. Because the reason you pick up all this ideology that you cling to, that makes you more and more subject, the reason you do that is to justify your anger and resentment and judgment and vanity towards other people. This is why forgiveness is so important. So that's why you gather in a congregation of people that you hope will all become believers. And so that you have an opportunity to forgive. One of the things you have to forgive is the fact that they don't gather together regularly. (laughs) Don't abandon them. Continue to try to gather as locally, as closely to one another as you can. And people say, well, I'm not getting anything out of church when I gather in these little congregations. I'm not getting what I want. What do you want? Do you want what God wants? Do you want to get a feeling? That's the thing we've become. We're addicted to the feeling that you get when you do church. But when you do church, you're probably not doing what Christ said. Now, I will admit that doing what Christ said may give you a good feeling. It may also get you persecuted. 
also may, you know, it's like having children. You want to have children. And you want to have relations. You know, uh, intercourse that brings about children. And so far, all that's giving you is good feelings. But once you got the children, now you have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning after working all day and help take care of the children because you just threw up <laughs> all over your bed. So, that's not a good feeling. But that's part of the deal. You don't just say, you know, I mean, this is why divorce is rampant. Because you got married because you wanted to have a good feeling. This woman made you feel good. This man made you feel good. Made you feel important. Gave you a feeling. You know why divorce is is running rampant? I mean, it was it was getting pretty bad before, but and, and lack of marriage is getting so important or so prominent is because people are getting the feeling when they're on their phones flicking through iChats and whatever. I didn't know how all these things are called and how they work and everything. But they're getting their little endorphin rush because, you know, they they actually send out a message to all their friends that they'll just say hi. And uh, to all their friends and then their friends will write back, they'll give them a like or they'll give them a hi. They take a picture of what they ate and they send it out to everybody on Facebook and everybody likes this and they like what I ate. Wow, you know. And it gives them a little sense of having a relationship, this community relationship that is constructed in our brains to desire. And we get this little endorphin rush with every one of those deals. They give, see people, I see people years ago that, you know, they want to have birthday parties for the kids. And they they want to see them open up presents and their eyes all light up like at Christmas. and And that gives them a little endorphin rush. And when they don't get that, I mean, then it's terrible. But the reality is that we're looking in all the wrong places for the feelings that things are good. That we have to seek what is righteous, not what feels good. What is actually good for others. Whether it feels good or not, we still have to seek it. And that will require, I mean, I'm sure it did not feel good to get crucified on the cross. It didn't get, it didn't feel good when it came true that Peter discovered he had denied Christ. I'm sure that didn't make him feel good. They had to deal with that. When the apostles were arguing amongst themselves and getting jealous of one another and Christ points it out and condemns them for it. I'm sure that didn't feel good. But they got better because they were willing to look at it. And so that's where you go to church. You don't go to church to feel good. You go to church to deal with the fact that you're not as good as you ought to be. And and you know you can't make yourself good like the sons of Aaron. You can't conjure up goodness. How do you get so that you're eating of the tree of life instead of just the tree of knowledge. How, how do you get life more abundant? How do you do that? What did Christ say? 
And not what Greg Hawkins said or or any of these other guys say that's going to make you feel better in church. What what did Christ say that will give you life more abundant? You lay down your life for your fellow man. How can you lay down your life for your fellow man if you won't even gather in little home groups for people you actually know that live nearby you? You could you could start having congregational meetings where you just invite people over. And you sit down and you talk about these things. That's the thing, you know, Thanksgiving, we're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. At our table, we talk about religion and politics all the time. (laughs) It's no big deal. And we can disagree. It's okay. And we can make our point. It's okay. We're not going to storm out and leave each other. You know, we're not going to throw a hissy fit. We're willing to talk about these things. And then you, you still, you know, I teased my one of my son-in-laws. All the grandkids were giving me hugs as they were leaving. Just about all of them, not all of them. <laughs> they come over and give old grandpa a hug. And so I saw my son-in-law going out the door and I put out my hands like, you going to give me a hug? And he just grins. Ah, next time, maybe. <laughs> He's got bubble issues. Not going to do that. But... Still, you know, we have different opinions, but we get along. We we respect the fact that we can have different opinions and look at things in a different way. And still have conversation. And we see elements of that out there in, in the media and society. There are groups that can sit down with a diverse opinions, voice those opinions, disagree with one another and respect. I, I saw Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro fundamentally disagreeing on certain things and still having a conversation. Fundamental disagreement. And I have to, I will I will bend more towards Ben Shapiro's side myself. But I, w- I watched it to see why is that disagreement there? What, what baggage are they holding or missing? What thing are they missing on that sheet of white paper that should be their souls, their hearts, and their minds. That they are missing. That they need to grasp in order to come to agreement. You'll never find that if you don't sit down and talk with one another. Share with one another. Help one another. Fix a meal and clean up afterwards. And, you know, do a little project. or You know, have it at this house. And maybe it's a widow lady or a lady living alone. Have it at her house. And then go around and do things. You know, and I, I went to homes uh, in the Midwest on one of the, the tours. I would go around and I stayed at a home while we were waiting for other people to come. And so I stayed there a couple of days. I was putting starters in their car and and uh, we had to hood up and fixing things. And we did all that kind of stuff. And we worked together on little home projects. That's church. <laughs> That's doing church. It's loving one another, caring about one another, helping one another. When the big things happen, like the, your your whole community burns down, now you get to cast your bread upon the waters and help people long ways away. You start doing that, you'll get your feelings, your emotional feelings supported. So when they want to look to the functions 
uh, of the early church, what was the early church doing? It wasn't just having potlucks and everybody sitting around. These people sometimes were persecuted to death, set on fires on stakes. Families became no father anymore. The children were now homeless. Where'd they go? They had a network to reach out when 14,000 families were kicked out of Rome under Claudius. Where'd they go? What'd they do when Jerusalem fell and, and thousands of Christians who had been persecuted had to leave every single thing behind and leave with nothing but the clothes on their back? Where'd they go? They didn't have isolated home churches, so that original picture drawn on that TED Talk by the guy who's the king of unchurch was missing something in his description of the early church. And that something is like the heart of the early church, which was loving not just those who love you, but loving people you don't even know because you had a commonality of Christ who said, make the people sit down in companies of 10, in ranks of 50 and 100 to the tune of 5,000. Of course, you had more than that on the first two days of Christianity. The first two days of Pentecost, 2001 day, 3000 the next. They're talking the heads of families, elders, heads of families. And they immediately organized in the pattern that we see throughout the church, the real church. We didn't see that pattern in the Constantinian church. We saw another pattern in the Constantinian church. We have articles up on that. So you need to get together. You want to study these things, great. You want to read about these things, great, but you got to be doers of the word. It's not doing church, it's doing what the early church and the early Christian community did, which is take care of one another. That's what you got to do. And when, in order to do that, you'll have to do a lot of forgiving and a lot of giving. You have to do a lot of self-examination and some rebuking of one another in love so that you can do what the early church did and what the early Christian community did. Now, I want to make that distinction because the church is the called out. And see, we have this, our brains have been trained to think that you do church. You don't do called out. <laughs> you are called out to feed my sheep, to love one another. And to, so, I mean, who's the sheep? If the church is called out to feed his sheep, who's the sheep? It's the people who are free souls under God, who govern themselves as individuals, but gather in free assemblies under the perfect law of liberty to take care of one another by doing what Christ said, tending to the weightier matters, of law, judgment, and mercy, and faith, where the elder of every family is the king in his own house, and his wife is queen, and they are no more twain, but one flesh. And their children belong to them. And we respect that, and we encourage that, but we also have this guiding thing like the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. Don't kill. Don't oppress. 
the stranger in your midst. We, we have those virtues. So if you don't see that taking place, a network of people gathering in small groups, taking care of one another, linked together in larger and larger groups with ministers who do not exercise authority one over the other, speak the mind of Christ in their hearts and their minds and in their communications and their confessions with you. And what do I mean by that? What they do is their testimony. Not just what they say. Because it's not what you say, it's what you do. So, what are they doing? Are they gathering you in bigger and bigger churches that cater to your feelings and make you more and more subject? Folks, that's a cult. That's a cult. What we're doing is setting you free from that cult. Your your family is an individual unit of God. We don't rule over you. We don't tell you what you have to believe. We tell you what we believe and we tell you not just in words but in what we do. That's our proposal is to follow the way. That's what Christianity was called. The way. It wasn't called Christianity. There's a lot of things calling itself Christianity today that is not doing what the early church did. They are not walking in the way of the early church. They're not practicing pure religion, which is religion unspotted by the world. And the word to use there is constitutional order or system of government. In other words, they were not applying or praying for the free bread of Rome. You're not ready to get to the point where you can even do that. You're still way back here when Jesus first started casting out demons and healing the sick. You're not ready to do that. And most of you aren't ready to do that. I'm sure there are some of you out there that are ready to do that. And I'm not making you do anything. I'm just saying that's the direction you want to go in. If the people of paradise had been doing that 10 years ago and linked with all the other Christian communities all across the country, they would have a system already in place that would have taken care of all the needs of Christians in that community, which would have been uh, empowered those Christians in that community to help take care of everybody else. And what you would see is a lot of people in that community rethinking what it means to be the church established by Christ. And I use that in the general sense. The whole community, the kingdom of God. Where every man is king in his own castle. Every family belongs to that family. Doesn't belong to all the other families. It's not a democracy. It's people who come together and take care of one another in the practice of pure religion, in the pattern that Christ laid down from the beginning. And it's different than what the churches are doing now. So yeah, we need that clean slate, but we need it on more than just paper. We need that clean slate, that clean sheet of paper in your hearts and your minds. And so, therefore, I have to tell you stuff that's different than what you heard because I'm saying, that ain't it. That ain't it. It's not just a good feeling. You can join all kinds of organizations. I mean, that's why you see the church diminishing and then there's all these life coaches out there and these 
positive thinking uh, people and what are the what's the you know they have the inspirational uh, groups these uh, motivational speakers uh, and they're all taking the place of the church they're doing sometimes a better job than you see in the churches without all the rigmarole and the ceremonies and all these things that cloud your objectivity but what you and actually we see you know there are you know, mercury one and these things um these uh also the good samaritan projects and stuff like that they're they're getting a little closer to the kingdom but i'm showing you a lot closer to what that early church was doing to give you a goal give you a direction so that you know am i doing this if i'm not then i'm not following the way i'm not doing the way of christ I'm not walking in the way of Christ. I'm not walking in the way of the early church. I got my little home church and we all love each other and we make each other feel good every week. We might even know a few other home church groups that we could help out of there. But the early church, right out of the box, had connections from Jerusalem to Syria to uh, Galatia to Corinth to Ephesus all the way to uh, Rome to even to Great Britain. They they had connections all the way there because they were meeting people along the way that had connections back there and they were spreading the gospel of the kingdom, a government that operated entirely by faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. They still had to pay in some areas local membership in this group or that group, or but they they stopped using the temples of Rome for their welfare because they became the welfare of Christ, the Corbin of Christ. And that's what we need to do. So join us on the network. Go to preparingyou.com. Go to hisholychurch.org. Join the network. Start gathering with other people and we'll we'll, I'll, we'll meet each other along the way. <laughs> Until then, peace on your house. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.